The views and opinions expressed on the Poor Ass Podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of BME Recovery Content Productions. Any content provided by our guests are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. And on that note, enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I have a new website. Go to www.poraspodcast.com for episodes. That's www.poraspodcast.com. So if you hear vcomedy.com, that is the old website. Go to www.poraspodcast.com for episodes and enjoy the show thanks for listening thanks for supporting bye and we're recording Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Poor Ass Podcast, where we talk about tough shit on a budget and how we can live a sustainable life. Uh, I have a special guest with me today is Frank King, the mental health comedian, a former writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years under Jay Leno. He is the author of Gut, Grit, and Grind, the Mental Mechanics Manual. He is a featured TED Talk speaker in 2018 on the subject of suicide, and he has turned suicide into a lucrative career where suicide is always on the menu. And just a content warning for the listeners, um, Frank and I are going to deep dive on the subject of suicide and talking about the stigma, misconceptions, where people can get help and have an honest, honest and candid conversation about suicide. So if this is a trigger for you and you're not re- ready to um, listen, uh, please save the episode and come back to it when you're ready. But just want to give a fair warning to everyone who's been listening. We're going to get real about suicide and um, how that affects uh, you know, uh, financial, emotional budgets that we have. So Frank, let's talk about it. Let's talk about suicide. Yeah. Well, and I want to uh, correction or two, Veronica, uh, turn suicide into a lucrative career. I'm not Dr. Kevorkian. <laughs> it's, it's actually speaking on suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue. I want to, people think, oh, wow. Dr. Kevorkian, he turned suicide into a career. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Well, that's what I meant. I, I was going off. I was going off one of the descriptions from your from your um, videos. But if yeah, that well, is, yeah. It's, it's, oh, oh man, these people are gonna think I'm horrible. Uh, <laughs> also, the name of the book is Guts, Grit, and the Grind: A Man, a Mental Mechanics Manual, Basic Mechanics. It's one of four 
Uh, the first one's the only one out right now. The uh, second one should drop sometime next month. It's an anthology, sort of chicken soup for the tortured man's soul, 12 stories, 12 guys each book. And by the way, your listeners can get a free, unabridged audiobook download if they go to my website, thementalhealthcomedian.com. It's unabridged. It's an MP3, and I voiced it. And my editor makes me sound fabulous. So, and I'll be voiced. That was my deal with the two ladies, um, psychologist Dr. Sarah, Sally Spencer Thomas, um, pretty far up the food chain in the suicide prevention world, lost her brother to suicide, is on the board of the American Association of Suicidology, and Sarah Gare, who speaks the suicide prevention for first responders, had hatched the last 20 years. And Sarah went looking for a book on men's mental health. She went to a brick-and-mortar Barnes & Noble, couldn't find anything. Well, on Amazon, couldn't find anything. So she thought, wow, we should write a book. So the two ladies called me and said, would you make it funny? And I said, you two ladies are writing a book on men's mental health. Don't you think you might need, I don't know, a man? <laughs> so they said, I'm right. and I said, well, if you make me co-author, let me voice the books for Audible. I will add the funny. And it's sort of like an automobile owner's manual. It's got that look. It's got a lot of automobile metaphors. If men took care of their cars like they take care of their, I'm sorry, if men took care of their brains like they take care of their cars, they better buy a bus pass. It's full of those sort of automobile metaphors. And I think that's, uh, yeah, the rest of it you got, yeah, I did write jokes for Jay Leno for 20 years. Started before he took over when he was just a permanent guest host. And then when he got the gig, mm. I actually had two jokes on his very first show and monologue and wrote for him until he got rid of the, I don't think he gave it up. I think NBC sort of pushed him out, but that's another mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how exciting! So you've been you've you've been doing comedy for uh, thirty four years, and I came across your um, your TED talk um, on suicide, and your I found your TED talk very inspiring insightful and to me that's an understatement you really go go deep and really start this co conversation of um putting suicide in a different different light or like taking the stigma out of it and taking the mystery out of it and you know um presenting suicide in a way where we can you know talk about it without being scared about it. So what led you to that, to this path of talking about suicide so candidly? Well, I started comedy in 85, 1985. And my lovely wife and I was my girlfriend in the beginning and shortly became my wife. We were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. Mm -hmm. No home, just post office box mm -hmm. and a voicemail. Uh, mm -hmm. Opened up for, worked with, lived with Dennis Miller, Jeff Foxworthy, uh, Ellen, Rosie. Back in there, all just comics. Yeah. But I always, because I'd, I'd done insurance, right? I've seen all the great sort of motivational speakers of the time of the mid to late 70s, Zig Ziglar and those guys. Mm -hmm. And as I watched them, I thought, you know, I could do that if I just had something to teach somebody. So for decades, I wanted to make a living and... A difference I could just never figure out what I had to teach anybody and then 2010 height of the recession the last recession never thought of that phrase the last recession mm -hmm. lost everything in bankruptcy 
at which point I found out what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, I didn't pull the trigger. Um, I say that in every keynote. And a friend mm-hmm. of mine came up not long ago. He'd never heard me say it out loud. And he said, pull the I said, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Um, after I came so close and I began to dig into my family's history, we have something called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And I never told anybody that I was depressed and having thoughts of suicide. And so my wife said, you should do a TEDx talk. I had no idea what that was. But by, by chance, uh, I belonged to an electronic speakers bureau, and there was a, an invitation to submit for a TEDx. And I thought, okay. So I submitted. It was in Vancouver, BC. And it was the summer that Robin Williams died by suicide. Mm. So I auditioned. And then I actually flew up to Vancouver and did the callback. And they called me and said, well, we'd love to have you present if you will talk about Robin Williams in your TEDx. And I said, well, I had already planned to do that because he and I worked together a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So I came out on stage at age 52 as depressed and suicidal. Nobody knew, my wife, my family, my friends. My wife was about to play it on YouTube and drop it on YouTube. And I said, look, before you hit the button, I need to tell you about half a dozen things you're not aware of. And so that was my first one. And I've since done four more on a variety of mental health slash suicide topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the TEDx, the reason I did it and came in then was to rebrand because everybody thought of me as a comedian. And the meeting planners said to me after the recession, we love you, Frank. We can't pay that kind of money just to be funny. You need a message. And so I had my message. I just need to rebrand with everyone because that, they didn't really think of me as a serious speaker. So that first TEDx, I sent that, sent that out to everybody who ever booked me to let them know. And what I discovered, Veronica, when I'm going up to the TEDx, is that even though one person in the U.S. dies by suicide every 11 minutes, hardly anybody talks about it, unless mm-hmm. you bring it up. And then everybody has a story. So that, that's why I realized, when I realized that, that hardly anybody talks about it, I mean, there's a vacuum in the market, and that if you mention it, well, pretty much everybody has a story. When I do a, a keynote or I did my third TEDx. Somebody said, you're in the first six speakers. Are you going to leave after you get done? I said, I can't leave. They said, why can't you leave? I said, well, when we break for cookies, watch what happens. Sure enough, we broke for cookies and lemonade. And there were eight people lined up waiting to talk to me. And it was about themselves or a relative or a friend, mm-hmm. but all on mental health and suicide. So that that told me that there was a market for that. There weren't that many speakers who weren't clinicians who were, t- were talking about it. And it's, yeah, it, I picked that lane, suicide prevention. And then I picked four or five occupations that have a high rate that are actually trying to do something about it. Dentists, veterinarians, doctors, healthcare, and construction is the number one at-risk occupation in the U.S. right now for suicide. So mm-hmm. I niched myself as a suicide prevention speaker. Then I niched myself to those particular markets. That's all I go after. Because they're trying to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell my speaker coaching clients, look, here's your, here's what you need for an ideal client. They have an annual meeting. They use outside speakers. We've got a budget that will float your fee. And most importantly, 
they have a bleeding need for what it is you have to tell them. Because, you know, how good your keynote is. If they don't have a need for it, they're not going to book it. So that, that's the short version of how I went from co uh, comedian, club comic, to corporate comic for about 10 years, to, uh, when, uh, I guess, Judy Carter, my mentor, says I went from being a funny speaker to a speaker who's funny. <laughs> and by the way, if somebody's listening and they want to know how, how to do that, Judy wrote a book called Judy Carter, called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And she walks you through the process of finding what your heart story is, what makes your heart sing, what you should be talking about. So I credit, I give Judy a lot of credit because she helped me organize my thoughts. And about halfway through the book, I realized I do have something to talk about. Yeah, you draw a lot from from personal personal experience for sure um how... and that's why people hire me and two reasons one i've got lived experience two i'm a comedian and people have said to me does being a comedian hold you back do they not book you because you're a comedian and i said no mm. you've got it. you got it backwards uh they book me because i'm a comedian Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it those two skill sets com combined. Um, I, I am a firm believer and, um, you know, finding funny in, in a, in a dark, in a dark place to, for processing and healing. Um, to me, the, the, the mystery, you know, the equation, uh, tragedy plus time equals comedy, um, yep. but for me, the X factor has always been how long, you know, is there such a thing as, as too soon or in, in talking about suicide, like, you know, um, you just receive, you know, the scenario, you just receive news that a loved one committed, committed suicide. Like, when do you start finding the funny or when do you start processing, you know, when, when it, in my, I'm, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience, like processing um, grief and just how I was exposed to grief or how my family processed grief, uh, there was no such thing. And, and I'm a person in, in recovery myself um, uh, on the family and friends side, recovering from being affected by the alcoholic home. Suicide is definitely part of of the story um so in my own life yeah uh the the thoughts have come and and gone and maybe there's like degrees about it but like how do you how do you navigate how do you navigate such a such a subject and where where can some someone with you know, they don't have a lot of money or l limited income, like how, but you know, a suicide is suicide. It doesn't matter if you come from poor or rich backgrounds, the grief is still there. So in your, in your approach, how can someone access uh, recovery tools? Well, and when I did that TEDx where we broke for eliminating cookies. It was in Pensacola, Florida. And there was a young woman and her daughter there vacationing. They went on Google and typed, what do you do in Google? What do you do in Pensacola mm. uh, on the weekend? And the TED Talk popped up. 
And she saw that I was a suicide prevention speaker. So she and her daughter both paid $95 to come to the TEDx. And she was the first one in line after we broke for our cookies and lemonade. And she did that because she had a, had a brother. He lived with depression. He had moved in with her about three months prior and seemed to be doing better. And then they came home one day and found the worst. And she, mm. she wanted to know, and this happens all the time. It's, it's as if I've stared into the abyss and come back and her loved ones stared into the abyss and did not. And they, you know, why did he want to kill himself? And my mm -hmm. answer is generally, chances are he did not want to kill himself. He just wanted to end the pain. And mm. uh, so they want me to decode. Because the, one of the reasons I'm allowed to do all that there's a rule in comedy. You can you can make fun of any any group to which you belong. If I was neuronormal or neurotypical, I couldn't get away with what I talk about because mm -hmm. it would be mm -hmm. in, in the comedy in, in comedy terms, it would be inappropriate. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and I, I I recommend that people, if you've lost someone to suicide, that you go through the postvention process. It's it's part of it is grief counseling. The other part is is finding someone who does postvention work and have them walk you through the the person's suicide. It's um, I have a friend. Well, one one of my co-authors does it. She gets the people together who are affected. Usually, it's twenty five people or more affected by each suicide. She gets as many of them together as she can, and then she walks them through. And each person generally has a piece of the puzzle. Mm. but not everybody has the entire puzzle. So she helps them put the entire puzzle together. And then when they look at the puzzle all put together, it's generally obvious that the person was circling up to a suicide. She calls mm. it the tyranny of hindsight. Uh, the good news is eight out of 10 people who are thinking about suicide are ambivalent and nine out of 10 give you hints in the last week leading up to it, either direct, indirect, verbal, nonverbal or behavior. So, what I teach, beyond just starting the conversation on suicide, what I teach are the signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide, what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say, and to, to your point, how to find resources. What I'll often do is, let's say I'm speaking in a county, Blaine County, which is where I live, or Eugene. If I was speaking to a group, I would go online and I would Google mental health services Lane County, and I create a list or in the, in the form of a, an attachment to an email. And it starts out with, the, you know, the for-profit, you got to have great insurance, low co-payment, whatever, mm -hmm. services, and goes all the way down to one of those outfits that will give you a couple, three appointments for free, and then they, they charge you on a sliding scale from that point, depending on how much money you make. So I give them a list. We also send them to the National Alliance Mental Illness, NAMI, local chapter is mm -hmm. because they have peer counseling, family and family counseling classes and everything NAMI does is free. Doesn't cost you a dime. It's a great resource. And, and if they're, they've got a loved one and by the way, let's say you have a family member with um, schizoaffective disorder. Mm -hmm. They've got a 12 week class for the family to teach you how to deal with it. What do you say? What don't you say? How do you find resources? How do you handle the person? And so, I recommend that they get the, you know, the education on that particular disorder so they can, I got a friend who has a child with, now an adult, with schizoaffective disorder. It almost destroyed the family until he found NAMI.
took the 12-week class. It took it a lot easier, but they were able to navigate raising a child with schizoaffectives. And the last thing I suggest they do, if someone is depressed or has another mental health issue, is there's a DNA cheek swab, like Ancestry.com. They do a little cheek swab and they compare your D- DNA to a wide variety of psychotropics, you know, uh, mm-hmm. mental health medications. They try to find the one or two or three that will work best with your metabolism. Mm. So you get a lot less of a lab rat, you know, go on table. So those are generally my suggestions if somebody, either they or someone they care about dealing with mental illness. And if you've lost somebody, then I, again, grief counseling, and I would find somebody to help me with a postvention to help explain, for example, People say suicide is selfish. Didn't they think about the people they're going to leave behind? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a common misconception. Uh, most of us who are contemplating suicide, not everybody, but most of us believe the world would be a better place without us. It's called burdensomeness. We feel like a burden on the people around us. So in the mind of somebody thinking about suicide, it is, in fact, a selfless act because you are thinking about the people you're going to leave behind because you think they'd be better off without you. Now, it's a completely irrational thought, but that's the thought process. So, yes, they did think about you, and they, they felt like you know you would be better off if they were gone. Again, it's an irrational thought, but that's the process. So that, that's something I try. When I do my talk, I try to decode I have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I was in the woods on a half mile up a logging trail with the dogs. I have T-Mobile, so I didn't have cell service. And uh, I had a heart attack. I've had heart issues all my life. I had two valve replacements, double bypass. Wow. And it is all familiar. Family, you know, I inherited it from my family. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm up, the, um, I'm up the trail and I'm having a heart attack. I know it's a heart attack. And... People assume oftentimes if you're depressed, suicidal, it's 24-7, 365. That day I was in a good place. I wanted to leave. So I had to march down the hill and I wanted to make sure the dogs were safe. So I had to get them in the car because there's a very busy logging road out in front of this trail. And and my thought was, like, just get the dogs in the car. I could die then because then my wife would find the car and the dogs would be safe. But I was able to drive home and then take the ambulance ride. But if I'd want to die a very socially acceptable death, been in a bad place that day, I could have sat down on the trail, let the heart attack run its course, die, and only the dogs would know that I chose. Because they'd find me, see the heart attack, you know, the way your body looks after a heart attack, they'd realize I had a heart attack, figure, you know, oh my God, he had T-Mobile, so he couldn't call anybody. And I was not able to get out of the woods. But that's another myth, I think. Oftentimes people feel if you're, if you're getting therapy and your medication is good, yeah, I have more good days than bad. Many, mm-hmm. many good days than bad. Mm-hmm. This weekend happens to be a rather, rather bad. It's been a rough couple of days. But, you know, mm-hmm. I put one foot in front of the other. Uh, as a matter of fact, right in this moment, I'm wretchedly depressed. But that's just a cycle. It's a major depressive disorder. lasts, for most people, two days to two weeks and recurs like a flat spot on a wheel. And I went to a funeral on Thursday, an old friend, uh, 94, time had gone. But I think it started, that triggered it for me, I believe. And I've been mm-hmm. sliding ever since. And so it's, uh, 
but you know, I have a safe care plan. I've got a, I've got a way to get out of bed in the morning. And I don't want to get out of bed. And matter of fact, by the way, Monica, I've been teaching that to neuronormal people in the pandemic because a lot yeah. of neuronormal people are waking up in an uncertain world and having trouble dealing with it and getting depressed. And so the stuff that I've been doing for decades as my self-care apparently is transferable to people who perhaps are suffering situational depression because of the pandemic. So I teach them how to create a self-care plan and how to, how, how to get out of bed in the morning and put one foot in front of the other until it's time to go back to bed and binge watch Netflix. So, yeah, that's interesting. Like the neuro on the neural normal, it, it, quote unquote, neural normal or neural typical, where uh, it, for someone who is has a suicidal prone um, tendon, tendency, or you know, someone in in your position where you, you you've you've been dealing with this before a pandemic ever yeah, yeah, hit. So I would say like, you're the pro, like if anyone who, who is seeking advice, I'd like, let's talk to the suicidal people. Like what, how are you doing this? Cause you were doing the deal long before a pandemic ever, you know, came to our doorstep. So, it's, yeah. so that's why yeah. I've been doing podcasts and webinars and radio interviews. And when I realized that, because people said to me, what about the mentally ill during this pandemic? And I said, you know, they are the ones I'm not worried about. <laughs> I'm worried about, because here's the deal. Here's my, um, mental illness is like this. There is a Greek character named Sisyphus, and he gave fire to man. And his penalty was he had to roll a rock up a hill every day mm -hmm. with the idea that it would get over the top of the world and it would be done. But every time he got near the top, it rolled back down. Yeah. Having a mental illness is like that. Every morning you wake up, there's a rock in the hill. Some days the rock is small, the hill's not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder, the hill is killing the jar. But every day, without fail, when a person with mental illness wakes up, there's a rock and a hill, and you got to move it. And so, we, like I said, like we've been dealing with this for, we wake up in an uncertain world every day, regardless of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, and we wake up oftentimes, don't want to get out of bed. Um, you know, and it's, it's, and I have several techniques. One is I make a to-do list It's called gamification. I make a to-do list of six to eight things. And the game is as soon as I scratch off the last time on the list, I can go back to bed. I don't care for broad daylight. I can go back to bed and binge watch, you know, prime mm -hmm. because I accomplished all six or eight things. It's called gamification. You make a game of it. And the way I went is I marched through those six to eight things. And then once I scratch off that last one, well, I'm headed back, pull covers over my head. And that's something I've been teaching neurotypical people during the, you know, during the pandemic. That's, and you need a schedule, even though you're not going to work at an office, you need to set your clock in the morning, get up same time, such, you know, go to bed about the same time, schedule your meals, schedule. I would say, I believe in a holistic approach to the safe care plan, diet, exercise, meditation, medication, and diet, exercise, diet, diet, exercise, good night, sleep, medication, meditation. So, you know, plan your meditation, plan your fun time, limit your media consumption, because it's all mm. bad right now, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah. pick your, pick your sources. I listen to my governor and my mayor because they're on the ground here in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's different in every state. 
So I, I watch some of the national news, but generally I, I wait to hear what the local authorities have to say, because that's what really impacts us here. As you know, Portland, I don't think has ever made it into phase one. Mm-hmm. And we're on hold in Eugene phase two because of this in cases. But again, I, I know that because I, I choose my media sources very carefully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those are really important, important points. Um, mental health during, during this pandemic. Um, have, uh, I want to ask this question before we lead into, um, you know, suicide and talking about like whose life is it anyway? Uh, have in, in your experience and what you have observed, do you feel like this pandemic is, um, because I know you said like you're you're more worried about the neurotypical. Have yeah. in, <laughs> have you noticed in 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 your work and working with neurotypical or you know um, connecting with your with your tribe those who are in the same suicidal tendency um, side of things? Like, has the pandemic made it worse or or better? Well, not for my mentally ill friends. Um, the you know of course that's only anecdotal just to people i know with mental illness we have talked about how we are well prepared for this it's like being a cast member of the walking dead for seven or eight years and then there's a zombie apocalypse you're like well i got this we build a fort and plant some vegetables <laughs> and because you've been practicing for years uh it, it's the neuronormal and i just read a study that said they're expecting last year there were forty-seven thousand deaths by suicide, not including the 65,000 opioid deaths. And we don't know how many of those were accidental or suicidal. Mm-hmm. They're expecting an additional 75,000 deaths by suicide this in this year. And mm-hmm. that would be, I would imagine, mostly people who are neuronormal or neurotypical who have been laid off, they're at loose ends, um, you know, the the federal unemployment runs out in July, um, can't pay the rent, can't feed the family. Uh, what they call them is deaths of despair. So they're not clinically depressed. They don't have depression. It's mm-hmm. situational depression, mm-hmm. leading to thoughts of suicide, increased drug and alcohol use. So that's what concerns me is that up to 75,000 more, which would mean, which would mean 122,000 suicides in 2020, one every four minutes instead of one every 11 minutes. Mm, wow. That's staggering. Yeah, and somebody, unfortunately, suicide is now a growth industry. Mm. And my goal, Veronica, somebody goes, what's your goal? Well, it's kind of audacious. I want to work mm-hmm. myself out of a job. Are you still speaking on suicide? No. Nobody's killing themselves. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's on the audacious side, granted, but you know, you got to, I mean, you might as well shoot for the stars. Uh, and again, I get paid. I can't tell you how many of my clients have said this to me when I arrived. I'm just brought you in to start the conversation on suicide. Uh, that's going to be the name of my memoir, Starting the Conversation on Suicide, Living in the Exit Row. I, I live in the window seat in the exit row on the airplane. I can go anytime I choose, which, by the way, ironically, is my superpower, one of them. 
and keep, helps keep me alive because I know I feel the pain at any time I choose. And that brings us to whose life is it? Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, take a little pause, and then we'll, when we come back, we are going to talk about whose life is it anyway? I'm Mark Roman of Mark Roman Empire, also a podcast, and I coined the term hero tier. Now it's a cause. Helping house Venka and Will since December 2019, helping creatives since St. Patrick's Eve 2020. Follow on Instagram at HeroTierGram. Discover more at HeroTier.org. HeroTier, leave no human outside. And we're back. All right. So in, in suicide, so here's a question that I, I have in terms of suicide prevention and, and the subject of the right, the right to die. Um, and whose life is it, is it anyway? Like how to, how do those perspectives work, work together or complement each other? Well, in Oregon, as you well know, we have right to die or death of dignity or assisted suicide. With there are stipulations, I believe a doctor has to sign off on, or a psychiatrist has to sign off on. You have to have a, an illness that is at the, and, and a short amount of time left. Uh, which I, I've had relatives, uh, friends and relatives dying of cancer. Um, a matter of fact, my wife's best friend from childhood, her husband. Uh, cancer came, went, came, went, came, went. Finally, it came and stayed. And so he was able to, you know, call the drugstore, get the prescriptions, create the cocktail, mm -hmm. and choose his time. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I believe. I, I mean, I believe. I wrote a horrible dark joke a long time ago. I got a flyer in the mail for the walk-in tub because uh, I'm 63. I guess at some age, you know, when you get to be AARP age, you begin to get the old people stuff. Mm -hmm. I got a, an appetite for a walk-in tub. And I said, somebody like, if it comes to where I have to have a walk-in tub, I'm pulling with gun in mouth. I'm not going <laughs> to suffer the indignity of. So I, I think, you know, it's as long as you're not leaving collateral damage in your wake. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, spouse and children and they're perhaps you're the breadwinner and they're going to be destitute. Um, I I was going to leave I had a million dollars in life insurance. And had I pulled the trigger, my wife would have gotten a million dollars. She was heartbroken, but she would not have been broke. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I truly was worth more dead than alive. That's that sense of burdensomeness. The world would be better off. She would be better off financially with me gone. So uh, I didn't because of my life insurance, I had to wait two more months for the two year suicide clause to expire. Mm. So I, ironically, because I have chronic suicidal ideation, knowing I could do it in, in two months and a day, I, you know, I had no problem going two more months because I knew at the end of two months, once the insurance was enforced, then I could do it. So, and by that, by that time, things got a little better. I don't remember day 61 or two or three. I don't remember thinking it just it got just better enough that it, it didn't occur to me that I could go ahead and do it. I, I think, yeah, I think if you're not going to leave a lot of collateral damage, you know, family behind, starving and destitute and homeless or whatever, it's your life. You know, it's it's yours to do with as you choose. Um I would I would hope that you wouldn't choose 
to die by suicide. I would hope you would seek help before you do. People, I, you know, I talk to somebody who's suicidal, I make them promise not to do it. Well, I don't make them promise not to do it. What I make them do or ask them to do. Look, I'm not going to ask you to promise not to kill yourself. What I am going to ask you to do is, before you do it, please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or text the word HELP to the text line 741741. Because I don't want my voice to be the last one you hear before you go. I would have difficulty living with that. Mm. So just do me a favor. Call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline before you do it. Mm. Yeah, that kind of leads to my next topic of expectations and and suicide on, on both sides of the one who is doing the suicide and the family members who are affected by by suicide these ex these expectations of or or are they realistic unrealistic when it comes when it comes to suicide um you know you have a family member like thinking about it do you stop them or or you're the person thinking about like suicide um when you're when you're in it and as you said like earlier it's like you know they don't want to die they just want the pain, the pain to end. So, Mm -hmm. you know, having conversations around that, those specific areas of pain or like, like who, who can they turn to or, or, um, and then on the family friends and side or, or those being affected, how can they, or what's a more appropriate empathic approach rather than just saying like, Oh, Oh, smile. And, and it'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I talk about that. Uh, First of all, let's talk about signs and symptoms of depression. Mm -hmm. Um, Eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. Um, Doesn't take the joy they took in social activities. I'm feeling hopeless. Let their, let their personal hygiene go. Mm -hmm. That's a big behavioral signal. Mm. I talked to Dennis. I talked to Dennis because Dennis have a hybrid. And I talked to them and their teams. I go, look, you get a client, a patient who comes in, and they're a little bit disheveled and their hair is not clean as it usually is. And you look in their mouth and you realize they haven't been taking care of their teeth like they were. That's a pretty good indication. So the question comes up, what do you say? Well, to your point, what don't you say? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Uh, what you do say is, look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that, that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And you got to follow up and mean it. And then you have to ask the question that's most difficult. I have difficulty with it. You have to ask them. Are you having thoughts of suicide? Just like that. And if you can't ask it, find somebody who can. There's no wives' tale or urban legend, I guess you'd call it now, that you should never mention the suicide word, the S word, in front of somebody who's depressed. I love this because it might give them the idea. Suicide. Why not think of that? Mm-hmm. Trust me, it's crossed their mind. So you need to ask in no uncertain terms, are you having thoughts of suicide? Now, let's say they say no, but you still suspect, and I always say go with your gut that they may be suicidal. What kind of signs? Well, talking about death and dying, Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. Um, They get in their affairs in order. 
they're giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. And if one of those prized possessions is a pet, an animal, that's the top of the pyramid in terms of getting your affairs in order. Mm. And here's a counterintuitive, really dangerous one. They've been depressed forever, and then for no apparent reason, they're happy. Happy, happy, happy. And you're happy because they're happy. But what's happening, they're happy because they've chosen time, place, and methods, and they know the pain is finite. Mm-hmm. So what do you say to somebody you believe is suicidal? Uh, do you have a plan? If they say they have a plan, tell me what your plan is. If the plan is detailed, your job as a mental health first responder is to get them on the phone with the suicide prevention lifeline or texting to the text line, 741-741. If they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone, call the suicide prevention lifeline, the volunteer will do their best, phone in the hand of the person who's in crisis. Now, the question often comes up, when do we call the cops? Well, if they're in immediate danger to themselves or others, you've got to call 911. Now, they're going to be upset about that because they're going to be taken before a judge and they'll probably spend three days in a mental health facility with no shoestrings or belt, involuntary mm-hmm. uh, detention order. Um, that's one of the problems I believe with suicidality is if I tell a clinician that I'm suicidal, by law in most states, they have to take you in front of a judge, arrest you essentially, take you in front of a judge, and the judge determines if you in fact need need to be locked down for three days. Now, I think if we allow people to talk about their suicidality without risking that, you know, guaranteed that, people, more people would discuss it, more people would talk about it, and maybe we could lower the rate because people felt feel like they could come out and share those feelings. Mm-hmm. So let's say they've got a plan, but it's not particularly detailed. The next question, and this is not written down anywhere in any textbook, it's like I came up with this. The next question, I would ask is, I do ask, are you going to cut yourself? And if they say no, then the last question I think is the most important. Okay, then tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever it is keeping them alive. Hmm. And I've got several reasons I don't kill myself now. I, 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 because I, I, when I speak, these people come up afterwards and some of them have chronic suicide ideation and didn't know it had a name. They thought they were just some kind of freak. And when I say that out loud and they realize they're not alone, the relief is palpable. And I feel like I've steered them just far enough off the path of suicide that perhaps they'll lead a normal life, which, which I realized one evening after speaking. I'm sort of like George Bailey in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I've been shown what their lives would be like if I weren't there to speak and go, hey, you're not alone. So if I kill myself, I would take each and every one of those people with me. And and by the way, I got the idea from somebody who is in AA. Buddy of mine's father was in AA for 20 years. Mm-hmm. From age 40 to age 60 when he passed away. And he sponsored innumerable people. And so somebody said to him, are you going to drink again? He goes, no, I'll never drink again. And they said, how do you know that? He said, because of all the people I spoke to. And all the people I'm going to. If I dive back into that bottle, I would take those people mm. and I can't, I cannot live with that. So that's kind of how I feel is I cannot, a friend of mine said, you can't live with it. No, I can't die with it. I can't, that and my mother worked very hard. My mother carried two to term that didn't make it before me. 
and had the courage to try a third time, then with my sister, a fourth time. And so my, my mother worked so hard to bring me here. I have to work at least as hard to stick around until my point in time. <laughs> so if you ask me, you know, well, why not? Well, that, that's, that's my why not. Wow. I think it's taken like incredible amount of self-work, whatever that looks like for you to reach to that point. It, I mean, for those who complete the suicide in, in your experience, and this kind of wraps up to our final topic of, you know, suicide superpowers, like maybe they didn't have the access to access their suicide powers to be like, wow, if I commit suicide, I'm taking everyone down or not, not like that, but like, you know, uh, the analogy that you gave about the, uh, the recovering alcoholic, like if he starts going back out, he's going to miss out like on helping others or like like the newcomer. And then those who commit, who have completed suicide in your experience, um, would you say like, I don't know, it just sounds like they maybe didn't get the chance or they, to find out what their suicide superpowers are. Well, my my third TED talk is called The Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. Uh, The idea being, it starts out like this. What if those of us living with mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? And what if mental illness as... um, uh, guy's name, David Goliath, um, Malcolm Gladwell says mm-hmm. in his book, David Goliath, of such things, it's a desirable disadvantage. You never wish it on anybody. Mm-hmm. But it comes with, uh, there's a positive side, and what if you could convince a child that, yes, you're having mental illness, but here's the part nobody tells you. You have a corresponding mental ableness. And what if... We treated the mental illness with therapy and medication, and then we embraced, energized, wrapped our arms around the mental illness and encouraged that, and then steered them in a, made the IED, the individual education plan, truly educational and steered them in a direction to a career, let's say they have OCD, mm-hmm. to a career that, that values precision and attention to detail, like architecture, engineering, banking, accounting, where they would be rewarded for this issue they have that, that most people see as a disability, but but they have this amazing focus and this this drive to find the one right answer. And and then by uh, the flip side of that, let's say they have dyslexia. Well, you don't want them in the STEM program, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, because that's just numbers and letters rolling around on the page. Steering them to the arts, humanities. Uh, they're particularly good at um, multi-level complex tasks. And by the way, Dyslexics tend to have better peripheral vision, and they also have the uncanny ability to, to, to find, to see the anomaly in anything. The joke I remember was never play Where's Waldo with a dyslexic for money because you're going to lose. <laughs> so what if you steer them in, in a direction? I mean, Google's hiring people on the uh, spectrum for their particular strong suit. Now, they're willing to put up with the lack of social skills or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're rewarding them for, I think that's where the key is. We need to, we need to change the frame for young people that, that mental illness is a singularity when I believe 
it's a duality. It's a combination of mental illness and mental ableness all wired together. Mm -hmm. We just have to figure out what that, what that, what that mental ableness is and encourage that. Uh, again, reduce stigma and bullying, give them more self-worth, um, change the way they appear to look at them. You know, you have obvious little strange, but if you've seen them draw, dear God, uh, like that. So that, that's where I think the solution is, is we realize that it's, that most people who aren't completely dysfunctional have one, and suicidality is my superpower in that I was married to my first wife, wonderful woman, selling insurance, wonderful business, but hated it, mm -hmm. was not doing stand-up comedy, realized sooner rather than later, I'm going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. My second thought was, well, what have I got to lose? I can divorce my wife, quit my insurance job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I can still kill myself. So, you know, I, I had nothing to lose by trying stand-up comedy, which is where I thought I belonged. I, I could put it all on one roll of the dice because if I stayed put, I was going to die. So that's why the fourth TED Talk is Suicide, the Secret of My Success, because because I had nothing to lose. I could try comedy and, you know, just like I said, put it all on one roll of the dice. And I was, you know, I, I focused on that. And, and fortunately, <laughs> if I know how hard it was and I'm started, I might not try it because it's a, I think I'm writing, I'm doing a keynote called, uh, What Could You Do If You Didn't Know No Better? If I had known how hard making them stand up comedy, I might have shot even though it was suicidal but as luck would have it i had no idea so awesome well we are coming uh towards the the end um do you have anything to plug uh, i would say go to my website called the mental health comedian the or should we say down south the mental health comedian.com if you go there and put in an email address. You can get an unabridged audio book copy of Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a mental mechanics manual that I voiced because uh, that was part of my deal. Uh, you can download the MP3 for free and listen to it, no charge. Um, and I've got a, another site, yourtedxcoach.com. And if you, because I coach people to get TEDxes. And if you go there, there's a PDF download for free. Six things you can do to kill your chances to get TEDx. Awesome. Wow. Uh, thank you again for coming on to the podcast. Talk about suicide, suicide superpowers, suicide on a budget, uh, mental health. <laughs> <laughs> suicide on a budget. Oh, let me do this. Before I go, okay. um, my phone number, my cell number is 858. 405 You're welcome to put that in the show notes too. Um, and I give it out every keynote that I, every keynote that I do, I put it on the screen. And I tell people, look, if you're suicidal, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you're just having a really shitty day, mm -hmm. call a crazy person. Uh, because we're, we're not going to judge. We're not going to should all over you. You should, you should do. We're just going to listen. So that's why I give out. And people call me and they, uh, they're amazed. This is really your cell phone number. Yeah, how cool would that be? Put a fake number up there. A <laughs> fake people number. people call me. <laughs> yeah, I'll make it worse. Um, hold, please. And then the on hold music is another one bites a dust. <laughs> another one going. <laughs> but yeah, I give out the cell. And people call me about themselves, about relatives, about their high school, you know, or their college roommates. It's all on Facebook's dangerous posts. Would I take a look? Sure.
what do I do? They're a thousand miles away. So yeah, that's why I give out the number because you know, it, all my job is to plant seeds of hope. And if somebody spots somebody having an issue, you know, that's half the battle, spotting it. Yeah. And I'm happy. I'm happy to help. What's the next step? Yeah. And for the record, uh, that number is real. I have used it. I, I, <laughs> I called you on that number. So that number, yeah. that number is real, everyone. Uh, use it. Here's a resource that that's available. And um, for a person in recovery, uh, that's one of the tools we call each other in recovery. And it's not easy. I get it. I've been there. Um, I have a lot of phone numbers on my cell phone, but I got, I got, you know, at least for sure one, one person, my, well, my sponsor for sure. But, you know, I got a couple of others and I know it could be overwhelming. Like Frank gets it. I get it. Um, but. Yeah. And that's why people call <laughs> yeah. because we hear the same music. They don't have to explain. Yeah. You know, I don't have to back it up and explain to me what they're going through because we, uh, you know, we, we think alike. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, you know, it's a fellow traveler. You don't have to like, like bumping into somebody from high school and it seems like you just, you, know, you pick up where you left off. Exactly. Yeah. Cause they know, they know what your, your history and you know, their history and you just, so I know what they're going through and they know what I've gone through. And so it's uh, yeah. And, uh, I could be found at vcomedy.com, V E E C O M. Edy.com, vcomedy.com, my Twitter and Instagram. You could um, get to those pages through through there. Uh, follow me on Instagram at Poor Ass Podcast on Instagram. <laughs> and great name. Yeah. And I'm excited. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for those who are who are listening, um, there is help. There is help. And, and hope. Help. I mean, that's, our, that's our job for running, <laughs> simply to plant the seeds of hope. Suicide is the most preventable cause of death in the world, and you do not have to be a clinician to stop someone from doing it. You just have to take an interest and step outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, God, I, 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 I want to end. I don't val- uh, validate. Yes, there's help and hope. And people who can validate your experience, they are out there. Um, yeah, well, let me leave you with something to help. Uh, anybody who's listening, we can make a difference. We can save a life. And we can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing right this minute. And that is starting a conversation. Yeah, shed the shame. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you again for Frank for coming on the podcast. Um, I'll put all those, uh, your website. And on the show show notes and uh, give us uh, a rating, five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Anchor as well. So keep it up. Support the podcast. Um, yeah. Rate, review, subscribe. It really helps. Yeah. Can I give you a comedy thing? Uh, pl- uh, please, if you like the podcast, please tell your friends. We should do some comedy clubs. If you didn't like the podcast, <laughs> we hope you have no friends. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, if your wife is one of them is carrying my child. <laughs>
Thank you, Frank. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. You you have a great one. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you um, at the next episode. Bye, guys.